0: The following interview was recorded in the studios of WGTD back in 2004 during a visit which Kathleen Kennedy Townsend paid to the campus of Carthage College. And Kathleen Kennedy Townsend we welcome you to the morning show.
1: Oh, it's good to be here, and it's good to be in uh, at Carthage, which I really enjoyed the last day, and Very today as well. Uh,
0: you were mentioning that you have not been in this uh, neck of the woods too much, but uh, had done some campaigning here. Tell us a little bit That's about right. that.
1: Well, um, during this campaign, I came out to Wisconsin and uh, to talked to a number of the students all around the state, and i I love Wisconsin. They went democratic. They were smart. They were enthusiastic. (laughs) And there's always going to be a warm place in my heart for Wisconsin. Actually, not just for this Kerry campaign, but in 1960, uh, Wisconsin was terrific for John Kennedy. Uh, I don't know if you remember Pat Lucy, but uh, Gaylord Nelson, you have wonderful, wonderful leaders here.
0: Hmm. I should mention that as I came into the building this morning, uh, one of the staff uh, knew that you were coming. And mention the fact that he remembers as a six-year-old boy hearing your father speak on the campus of Carthage College. So uh, that was a long, long time ago, but uh, remembers the experience very, very vividly.
1: Isn't that wonderful? Yeah.
0: Tell us, first of all, um, if you can, something about what it is like to bear the Kennedy name. That is something which I think the rest of us in, in the public sort of grapple to understand just the, uh, the, the magic, the mystique, whatever it is which surrounds that name, and what it is like to live your life as a Kennedy.
1: <laughs> well, I feel you know, very blessed. Um, Hardly a day goes by that I don't hear a story that, such as you just told. I remember meeting your father. I went into teaching because of what your uncle said. I went to the Peace Corps. I got involved in public life. I saw him in New York. I shook his hand in in uh, Kenosha. And so I feel very much at one with so many Americans. And actually, not only that, people around the world. Um, when I've been to Japan, people there could remember my father's visit. Um, I can sing for you the Waseda fight song, (laughs) 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 or Central America, or South Africa. When I went to South Africa in 1985, uh, I met a number of people who could recite word for word my father's speech at Cape Town. So I feel very blessed because people remember uh, what he did, what John Kennedy did uh, years later.
0: Hmm. Uh, listeners to The Morning Show may remember, and I, I mentioned this to you before we went on the air, that I recently got to speak with uh, documentarian David Grubin, who, of course, put together such a splendid film about your father uh, for PBS's series uh, uh, American Experience. Uh, and, of course, one of the things which he tried to do and which people continue to, to, to do is, is to try to, to fully understand uh, your father and uh, all of his complexity as a human being and, and some of his amazing gifts. And, and also, as, as I think was portrayed so beautifully in that film, the idea that your, that your father, on the one hand, began his public life very much out of the public eye, I mean, not as a person front and center in the spotlight, and then, of course, found that role very much transformed as life uh-huh. went on.
1: Yeah, I guess I don't remember it quite that way, since as a young person I said this... Sh- um, yesterday, when I was growing up and most four-year-olds were being taken to the playground, my mother used to take me to the Senate Racket Committee hearings. <laughs> <laughs> and listening to my father prosecute the um, the corruption in the Teamsters, and you know, I remember coming home at five, you know, I remember my father coming home at dinner one time, I said, why do you keep being on television? I want to watch Disneyland, (laughs) (laughs) Walt Disney or something. So, you know, maybe he wasn't in the great public eye for most people, but for me, he was certainly on television early on. Um, I remember, you know, I think at Look magazine or some magazine having a picture of him on one side and Jimmy Hoffa on the other, really Mm. very angry with one another, which actually taught me that uh, you can't, you don't have to be loved by everybody, that sometimes you're judged by the... uh, by the enemies you make.
0: Mm. May I ask what your memories are of your Uncle John's presidency? I mean, what age would you have been for those I'm years? I'm
1: the oldest of all the grandchildren. Right. So I was um, I was born in 1951, so I was probably 10, so mm. t- 10 to 12, which is an, an age that I can remember. You know, I remember the inauguration day, which was, as you know, very snowy. But most importantly was the, you know, the civil rights movement, the um, what do you do when people are being beaten and uh, the dogs were sicking uh, African-Americans and and whites who were often also joined, joining in the uh, freedom fighters, freedom riders. So I remember, you know, a lot of sense that this was, we were in a moral battle um, for civil rights, I, for freedom. Um, you know, the the Berlin Wall came down during that time. Uh, my father, in 1964, took us to Berlin and to Poland. So I really saw growing up at those three years that, you know, America really had a role in the world. We were special and we were fighting f- the good fight.
0: Mm. That's heady stuff for an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old to be uh, a- a- aware of that, as apparently you were.
1: Well, I think, actually, um, I try to encourage that also with my own children, that they know what's going on in the world. Um, There are lots of interesting things. And I saw, just as I was walking into your office today, um, the article about the youth vote in this election, how young people went up, uh, the number of young people increased by about 4 million. And I think young people do want to know that this is their world and they can shape it. And they have this choice as to what they want to make of it.
0: How compelled did you feel to enter the world of, of political life uh, as so many of, of your, your, your family members have yeah. done? I mean, do you feel like that was a role that was sort of thrust on you in a sense that you grew into obviously or, or, or did you feel very comfortable from the start with the idea that this would be part of your life as well?
1: Well, that's a good question. It depends what you mean by political role. I always believed that I should Make a difference. That I had a contribution uh, that I should uh, make. We were taught from the young young age. You know, we had been given a lot. So we were quoted Saint Luke from the those who have been given much, much will be expected. Um, my father and mother made sure that we understood what was going on in the world. Would take us to, um, you know, places that my father was working on. Whether it was the attorney general's office or the Senate office, um, he would take us to the Indian reservations and show us that, you know, there are real challenges in the country. So he was always very clear that we had a responsibility. But I, growing up, never believed or never even dreamed of going into politics, because that Mm -hmm. was really what guys did. You know, my uncles were in politics, but my aunts were not. They Mm -hmm. were... uh, Having children, they were doing charity fundraising. So it was never that women would go into politics. That really didn't happen until uh, the women's movement, Mm -hmm. which is an important, I think, story because it shows that you can have possibilities right in front of you, but if the society limits you, um, you may limit yourself.
0: Mm. So uh, I, I, I feel like I should know the answer to this question, and I'm afraid I don't. Are you the first of the Kennedy family women to actually step into politics? and, the, o-
1: such? and the only one yeah, none of the other uh, women went into politics
0: interesting yeah has there been But there a, a number
1: of my bro- you know my brother brothers have certainly um, yes. looked into it uh, my cousin you know Bobby Shriver and Mark Shriver and my cousin Patrick Kennedy, but none of the women
0: very good. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about that about all the uh, politicians that are that are part of this family and of course I I'm not aware of any exceptions I think you're all Democrats yes except for Maria's husband Oh, okay right (laughs) Um, but otherwise would you say that you are I mean I think the tendency in the public is to of course paint with too broad a brush and to assume that you're pretty much all the same sort of political animal I mean pretty much the same uh politicians but just with slightly different names and coming from maybe slightly different places right I have a feeling the picture is more nuanced and complicated than that
1: it might be (coughs) but but, you know on the whole you know we're Democrats and I think that there's not a lot you know we we would say that we needed we need to make sure that we take care of the least among us that we should um, help with the health, you know, healthcare and excellent education. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I have not spent my time trying to distinguish myself from my uh, my relatives, in in par- large part because they were all in uh, like Congress or delegates, and I was lieutenant governor, so I was running things, and we had different roles.
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: And you when you have those kind of roles you're actually interested as a lieutenant governor in getting things done You know, how do you make the streets safer? How do you reduce the bullying in the schools? How do you? Uh, help uh, protect our environment. It was much more practical get things done rather than legislation which is it's just different skills and, and different issues
0: interesting. I'm reminded of um, Something which uh, Howard Dean said early in the Democratic campaign, uh, Arthur Walter Shapiro said this in an interview I did with him, uh-huh. that, that, uh, that what distinguished Mr. Dean from most of his competitors was the fact that he was a governor. Yeah. And, so, and governors are, in, in his words at least, are used to being unpopular to some extent, of, of, of making some enemies along the way in the, in, in the hopes of getting things done, yeah. whereas legislators, just by nature and, and the nature of what the work is that they do, uh, have to uh, sort of bend and twist and so on and, and end up compromising themselves, at least to some extent. Uh, do you think that's an oversimplification or is there some truth to yeah, that Yeah,
1: actually, I, I would have said, in a sense, just the opposite. Hmm. Um, I think governors try to get things done, so they pull from wherever they can to accomplish things. Whereas legislators uh, usually appeal to a particular ideological group. You know, I'm the liberal legislature, I'm the conservative legislature. So anyway, we have a different view of
0: it. We're (laughs) we're speaking today with (laughs) Kathleen Kennedy Townsend uh, on, on today's morning show. I think one of the things which made your father a particularly beloved figure was the fact that in, in some respects on the, on, on, the, on the surface, his personality was not that of the typical politician. That he was, and I think perhaps in, in contrast to his brother, he seemed like a quieter and shyer person. Of mm-hmm. course, we know uh, if we really see the full picture that he was a person of fierce convictions and great great strength, right. but just in terms of demeanor and so on, and the reason I mention is is because in a sense his one of w- one part of his legacy is that uh, is that a, a wide range of human being can really seriously think about entering the political arena. Uh, yeah. You do not have to be the right. used car salesman, uh, easy with the chit-chat kind of person right. to, to function very well and to make things happen.
1: Right. In fact, a lot of politicians are not good at easy chit-chat. They, some of them just want to deal with the issues and then aren't comfortable. It, there are all sorts of people who are involved in politics. Um, very broad range of personalities. And my father, as you point out, was probably on the you know, more r- restrained si- side. But th- I've seen in politics that writ large, lots and lots of people can get involved in politics.
0: Mm. Let's talk about a couple of the issues which were... Uh particularly important to you as Lieutenant Governor and which are, are still import- important to you to this day. And then, by the way, we're going to get to some questions which have been emailed, and if you have a question which you would like me to direct to uh, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, please email them to wgtd at gtc.edu. Oh, w- my gosh. Yeah, we can Good on. luck
1: if you can do that. <laughs> That's right. You definitely yeah. deserve to get an <laughs> answer.
0: Okay. Again, wgtd at gtc.edu. <laughs> EDU. One of the uh, concerns which you had as lieutenant governor, uh, and it's one of the topics which you've been speaking about at Carthage, has been that of bullying. Mm -hmm. First of all, where did that concern for you originate? Well, what what (coughs) I'm very concerned
1: about is having young people have the opportunity to make a difference, to be able to express themselves. And they can't do it if they feel intimidated by the other students. Um, So I wanted to make sure that we would have schools that were safe, that schools would allow everybody's individual talents to uh, emerge. And what I wanted to make sure is that when we dealt with the issue of bullying, we didn't do it with sort of coming down tough, you know, an anti-bullying campaign, as we already have sort of things like an anti-drug use campaign and an anti, you know, early sex campaign. We have all these anti-campaigns for kids. And I wanted to have a positive campaign for children. So I really launched a character education effort to say not just what kids shouldn't do, but what kids can do and how they can be courageous and respectful and brave and kind so that you can e- t- reach to e- kids' best selves rather than just punish their worst ones. Mm.
0: You also uh, instigated, I believe, some sort of policy in Maryland, and I think it was the first in the country, where community service became mm-hmm. an essential component to graduating from high school.
1: Actually, I did this before I became lieutenant governor. I, I did this as a... Um, I would call myself the advocate who worked for seven years to make Maryland the first state to require community service because I had seen so many young people not believe that they could make a difference. Um, here they were living in you know, the oldest democracy in the world, and they felt impotent and as though they could even dream of making a difference. And I thought that was sad, so I wanted to give those kids the experience. And I had f- run across other children high school students, um, who felt that they had no responsibility to anybody else in the community. Those were those people. That was their problem. Why should I care? Why should I get involved? And I thought, you can't build a democracy like that. And it's sort of a kind of selfish attitude. Um, and I thought we needed to change that and say, actually, we're all Americans together.
0: Hmm. Actually, I'd like to ask you something very specific about that. Um, one of the things that, of course, has is, is, is been so intriguing about the, the Kennedy family as a whole is the fact that there has been this really concerted effort uh, inspired uh, by your parents and their parents before them, the idea that because you had been given so much, right. much was required or right. expected of you. And, of course, there are, are plenty of people of wealth who don't have that attitude at all, who, who spend their, their wealth on yachts and, yeah. and then sit on them and, uh, and, and don't give a thought to those that are less fortunate. Um, how, what, what kind of outreach is possible to the wealthy of this country to try to instill in more of them uh, the, the, the attitude which, uh, which has been at least a part of the Ken- Kennedy legacy?
1: Well, I would not just limit it to the wealthy. Well, right. (laughs) I really wouldn't because I think that um, the greatest joy comes from making a difference. That, you know, you're sitting here at the radio interviewing people, making their ideas available to a whole audience that might not otherwise be able to hear them. And that, I think, turns you on. It's fun. It's a joy. And I think that one of the sad things is that... um, a lot of individuals don't know it, you know? There's this whole self-help movement that is sort of focused on how to make myself happy. And I think they've missed the fact that we really get our happiness from making a difference, hmm. from making a contribution. That that's how we feel fulfilled and that's how we feel that we've lived a purposeful life.
0: Hmm. Well, and I suppose that's important for everybody, right. no matter your <laughs> station in life. But I mean, even like a multi-billionaire, I mean, at the end of the day, Yeah that that's ultimately where their happiness is going to be is not in this row of yachts they have but uh, probably not
1: not probably more in what they did to get those yachts Hmm. I mean I assume that most of those who have made the money think that they've made a contribution whether it's you know (coughs) employing people all around the world or whether it's um, You know, I think of Rupert Murdoch making a newspaper, Empire, or Bill Gates clearly is a perfect example of somebody who actually made a difference through what his work was, Mm. um, but also through the Gates Foundation. Absolutely.
0: Something else which has been an important concern for you is that of crime. And you have uh, sought to to, to get government to to think about crime in kind of different ways.
1: I tried because I think um, that... And we did this in Maryland, reduced crime substantially by getting the community involved. It really goes back to my earlier point that you can't, government can't just do things to people or even for people. It has to work with citizens because citizens have to feel that this is their community. And, you know, as the oldest of 11 children, I realized you can't tell people what to do your brothers and sisters. Even if you're right, they don't want to hear it. Mm. You actually have to get them to see it themselves. And so what I did in order to reduce crime is to say, yeah, we'll provide more police, more parole and probation officers, more after-school activities, but we needed the citizens in the community to say, we'll work with the police, we'll work with the parole and probation officers, because if they don't, then the crime doesn't go away. It might for a few minutes because you arrest everybody. But to really build a safe place, you have to have the citizen saying, I will also b- clean up the trash. I will tell the police who the drug dealers are. I will play a role. I am an important person who can play that role.
0: Hmm. We're speaking today on The Morning Show with Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Uh, your questions are welcome for her at W G T D. At gtc.edu again, WGTD <laughs> at gtc.edu. Uh, we're going to be talking um, about more the current political situation for for a few minutes. Let me ask first uh, your impressions of America, the red and the blue, so to speak, this sharply divided uh, America which seems to be before us right now. And now two consecutive. Hotly contested presidential elections. Uh, do you see this as a troubling scenario or maybe a, a healthy situation for the United States?
2: Well, clearly, I prefer.
1: I would prefer that Al Gore win and that uh, John Kerry w- win. Um, I, you know, I think that their vision for the country is a is a better one. That I'm a Democrat, so what would what do you think? But I do believe that this. Um, there's an opportunity for the Democrats to uh, look deeply into what we want to what we want to say and what do we want to convey i'm actually writing a book myself now um, about how we need a, how we need a spiritual awakening for justice because my belief is that when you're fighting for justice, as I saw in my own family. You know, you did it because you thought it was the right thing to do. You thought, you know, there was a moral force in providing civil rights and fighting for freedom around the world, um, for making sure that we would have health care and excellent schools. This wasn't just, you know, party politics, uh, interest group um, payoffs, but really a moral mission about how you build a stronger and community. And I think we've missed that idea over the last 40 years. And it's unfortunate given um, that all the progressive movements um, in American's history has had a religious component. And so I think now, mm-hmm. given this last election, um, that will, uh, we're going to be rethinking that much more.
0: And, and trying to embrace that side of it, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and realize, w- why do you want to provide health care?
0: Hmm.
1: Why is it important that we have public education? One of the big divisions, I think, that's going on now in the country are those who, you know, we've always had in in American history sort of an individualistic ethic and a communitarian ethic. I mean, we've always had that intention in some way. And I think that the Republican Party, particularly under the leadership of this president, has really focused on the individual. We want to privatize Uh, Social Security. We want to privatize health care. We want to, um, you know, allow vouchers for public school. We want to tear apart the bonds of, 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 of those aspects, those institutions that brought us together. Why do you want to do that? I think that's wrong. I think we are, we should work with one another to tie us together to realize that, you know, we're all children of God, which means that I care about how you're doing and we have to help one another. We don't just try to save our own self.
0: Mm. So you think that maybe the Democrats as as whole, at least in, in general, have been kind of reluctant to embrace that kind of language, maybe, yeah, they talking have, about these things? I think
1: they have, in large part because in the last 40 years, um, we had the women's movement and the uh, gay rights movement, and rather than Ground that in our, uh, you know, s- biblical traditions, or our we didn't, and I think that has to change because we cannot talk about justice uh, without some uh, grounding in something deeper in our American psyche. Now that's true, particularly in this country, because 85 percent of Americans say that they believe in God, and if you are going to appeal to all those Americans, I think it's important to have a language that and a s- sense of history that does that.
0: and But you're also suggesting that this is not something cosmetic, that you're trying to take spiritual terminology and apply it to something that's already there. No. You're saying that it's intrinsically part of this.
1: Well, it is, and it really was the point that I made earlier about, you know, where do you find your happiness? You find it from giving, from participating, from caring about others and making a difference. And that that's really what the Democratic Party knows but it's they haven't they haven't been able to sort of go be below the surface and say wait a minute why do we believe this where does that come from Mm
0: -hmm. let's take our first uh, question from uh, from a listener this uh, listener writes hello Kathleen I am a lifelong Democrat who could not vote for either Al Gore in 2000 nor John Kerry in 2004. What has happened to our party? Where are the men or women with the political convictions and core beliefs of your father and your uncle? Uh, When will the Democrats give me someone I can embrace with open arms and actually vote for? From Dan in Pleasant Prairie.
1: Well, I don't know why. It's hard for me to understand why you didn't like Al Gore and and John Kerry. I think they did have important beliefs. I think that my father did as well. Um, there's a tendency, and I'm just going to say this, to you know, sanitize the John Kennedys and the Robert Kennedys. Oh, they were great, and when nobody's like them anymore. And we have to say, you know, we're all human. And I think that John Kerry would have been a very good president, uh, would have been straightforward with the American people. Um, and it's what we needed. I wish I, it's hard from that question to understand why you didn't like them.
0: Hmm. Your question's welcome at wgtd at gtc.edu. Another question for you. Uh, Whenever I think of your family, this listener writes, uh, I think of all the sadness that you have uh, endured. How does your family view its personal tragedies?
1: Well, it's, we're, there are lots of different members of our family, so people view things differently. Um, so that's important to realize, and I'm not going to say here I'm speaking for all the members of my family. But what we have, I think the number of things have helped our family. One is our faith, um, clearly a sense that you know we're put on earth to do something, um, to work for justice, uh, to care about the least among us, to use our talents for others, and that uh, that's what we'll be judged on. Um, two, I was, you know, I saw what my father did after his brother died, after John Kennedy died, and what John Kennedy died did after his brother, Joe Kennedy, died, and they said we're going to still make a contribution, we're going to still get involved, um, that, our, that our sense of meaning comes from a making a difference and you have to do that uh, or you don't have to but it's you know it really goes back to this whole idea that i've t- tried to put forth that h- how do we live our life how do we create a story that makes sense and a large part of that story comes from trying to make a contribution hmm.
0: Th- this is another interesting question i think uh, this listener is wondering uh, about the Kennedy family now, and if you still gather in a big way for holidays and around other occasions, as as certainly was once the case, and very much in the in the public eye at least to 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 some extent. I mean, I that's a that's a very good question. What is kind of the nature of the Kennedy family?
1: Well, um, <laughs> you know, there are lots of parts of it. Basically, um, during the summer, lots of members of family go up to hyannisport and there's if you're there in august there are a lot of brothers and sisters around during the democratic convention we were we sort of gathered a great deal because teddy was being honored and teddy spoke and so we were there at that time so during the course of a year there are probably a number of events that we all get together for not everyone because people are have their own families and something might be going on but Generally, do we see each other? Yes. (laughs) There's no question about
0: that. (laughs) How big a family are we talking about anyway?
1: Well, I don't really know. I mean, you know, my mother has probably about 31 grandchildren. Um, So that means I have a lot of nieces and nephews. but I have a lot of cousins who have a lot of family. Maybe they're about 120. I don't know. I Ew. mean, I'm not, you know, to tell you the truth, I am not counting.
0: You're not the mathematician. No.
1: Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to keep track of everybody. Hmm. That would be, <laughs> there's just so many projects one can keep in one's head at one right, time. Right,
0: exactly, exactly. What has been the, um, what has been the most, the, what has given you the most pleasure uh, in p- Pursuing political life versus what has been perhaps the most unpleasant of surprises in in what this life has brought you. That's a that's an interesting question in that you probably knew a fair amount of uh, going in, and yet to experience it yourself firsthand right. is a little different.
1: Well, the greatest pleasure, of course, is to actually make a difference. Um, we talked about crime earlier, and my I had this hot spots program that reduced crime in the in very violent areas, uh, 25 uh, to 35 percent over three years. We set a goal. We met the goal. People could say, I can sit outside now in a way that I couldn't sit outside before. Um, I can walk the streets in the evening in a way that I couldn't do that before. I've met my neighbors. That's exciting to me. In other words, people's lives are better because of what you've done. Um, The frustrations, you know, I've always known there's frustrations. People don't Um, always agree with you. I guess the biggest surprise was that people would just change their positions just because they're irritated with somebody else across the table, not because they believed in anything in particular. (laughs) And it was just kind of weird. And that was a, a, a funny kind of experience I had. I saw that sometimes it was just the irritation of People rather than the issues that mm. made, made things difficult to accomplish
0: politics does get personal doesn't it It gets
1: very personal which means that you can the relations you could, can make you accomplish things that you might not be able to do ideologically but it also means that people uh, just don't want to do it because they don't like
0: another person hmm. um, what is your impression of how this uh, presidential campaign played out, and how would you have, I mean, aside from the result, which of yeah. course you wish had been different, um, uh, how do you wish this political campaign maybe would have been waged differently? Uh,
1: well, I thought, you know, look, I thought John Kerry did a terrific job in the debates. I thought he was great. I thought that, um, that the lies of the swift vote group that aired were just hor- horrendous, and I thought that the... Uh, the president knew they were lies, President Bush, uh, knew that they were demeaning John Kerry's work, his heroism, and he did, he did it in order to win, and I thought that was horrendous. I was just taken aback that during the Republican convention they were making fun of people who wore purple hearts or won purple hearts. So, I mean, I just thought to demean uh, heroism during war, for your own political purposes was really outrageous.
2: Hmm.
1: But, you know, that's, that's what they did. And I think that, you know, I thought the second thing that, you know, I can go on about what I didn't like about what the Bush campaign did. I thought the second thing is he talked about how we're going to have freedom around the world and that if you showed up at a Bush campaign rally and wore a Kerry T-shirt, uh, they, they arrested you. What kind of freedom is that? So I thought the rhetoric of freedom that the president uh, used and the reality of what happened on the, on the ground were two different things. And I think that is horrendous. And a third, I guess, is that so many of the Bush supporters uh, believed that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, believed that there was a tie between Al-Qaeda um, and uh, um, Saddam Hussein, and I think that's horrendous. You know, because it meant that people didn't know the truth. And why didn't they want to know the truth? But that's um, that's we're on the bridge. I think we're going to have to go forward. And I hope that in the next uh, number of years, we're going to be more forthright, especially when we send our soldiers into war.
0: Hmm. One thing that political analysts have said, I guess I'm a little leery of asking uh, you this question, but uh, some people have have mentioned the fact that uh, in the last 30 years, the two Democrats who have been elected president, uh, President Clinton, President Carter, are both from the South, uh-huh. and that uh, that it maybe is a tougher row right. for a for a, a, a new northeastern Democrat uh, yeah. to to carry the whole country, to carry that big swath of red right. which crosses down the middle of the continent. First of all, do you think that do you think there's much truth to that, and uh, and and if so, where do you think that's coming from, and 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 how could that be kind of? Well, uh, you know, in the fact,
1: you know, Kerry won, uh, you know, when P- Bill Clinton won, um, he did it when Perot was also running, so he never really reached that many votes. You know, he didn't get to 50% himself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's important to realize. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there is. Clearly, it's it's harder um, if you come from the Northeast to reach out to others because you just, you know, you have a different accent. You have, you know, when you elect somebody, you feel more comfortable with somebody who sort of sounds like you. And I think that was, a, you know, that's a challenge. But I think John Kerry did very well. I mean, I wish he had won, but I don't. I think that this the Bush attack machine would have destroyed anybody. Hmm. I mean, when you send have all those millions and millions of dollars spent against you, and this is for, he was a hero in the war, and they still destroyed his character. It's it's hard to imagine yeah. um, who they wouldn't have gone after.
0: You've talked a lot about John Kerry. What was your impression of John Edwards, the vice presidential candidate for the Democrats? Well,
1: I thought he was good. I Very frankly, after he got out of the campaign running for president himself, I didn't see him much. You know, Maryland is a Democratic—it was a very Democratic state, so mm. we didn't watch the ads. Ah. You know, we didn't. We weren't a swing state like you were, Wisconsin, right. so we didn't have John Edwards really there much. Um, you know, I think he's a very attractive person, but, you know, he was not—he um, did not—
0: wasn't in your neck of the woods. He wasn't so? in it.
1: He actually came and did a couple of events in Maryland, but um, you know, I don't know. What did you think? Uh,
0: he was uh, he was impressive. He was uh, he was in Racine on a couple of different uh, yeah. occasions. One of which I, I, I covered. He's uh, I I always said from the very beginning of the Democratic uh, campaign, I thought he was uh, the most spectacularly gifted as a communicator. Oh, I that's great. I mean, he great. just really knows how to say what he wants to say. You know, in my opinion, better than anybody on either side of the aisle in this in this huh. campaign, he is the great communicator. You might not agree with everything yeah. he stands for, but uh uh very, very effective, but of course very young. I think his inexperience would have would have counted against him if he'd yeah. been the presidential candidate yeah. of course
1: I think that's true i mean, I absolutely believe that mm-hmm. they would have said it. on the other hand, George Bush didn't have much experience either when he ran for president, so Part of elite, it is not your past, but your, what you present as a future that really matters.
0: Yeah. Let me revisit a, a question earlier, which uh, kind of we got off on a little bit of a tangent, I think. And, I'm, and I really want to know your your impression of the fact that we live right now in what seems to be a very divided America. I mean, just about right down the middle. Yeah. And, and some people wring their hands in consternation and, and worry. And other people feel like this is sort of the way it, maybe is meant to be, and, and see it as a fairly healthy thing that we have this very spirited discourse going on uh, between the left and the right at the moment. Well, well I don't think enough. it's
1: equal. I mean, I think the problem right now is that the um, Republicans control the Senate, the House, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the appointing judges, and a lot of the media is Republican-oriented. And so that you don't really have uh, a spirit, you don't really have a real debate. Um, I mean, it, it goes back to what I said earlier. If all these Bush supporters didn't even know that there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, didn't know that there were no ties between Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, what is going on in our public debate when the most basic facts are misunderstood? and i think that has to do with the with the, the the situation which is the you know the media and a lot of the a lot of the powerful parties are controlled by the republicans hmm. part you know powerful institutions are controlled by the republicans
0: so you don't see it as quite the 50-50 split no I,
1: well i don't they see it's 50-50 i think you I mean it might be of the citizens they're split but the fact is the i mean what what would be the difference if you had actually an honest media who was talking about what, what the the, tr- who was able to get out what was actually the truth? Now, um, now they'll say we told it, and people don't want to listen. But if you look at what is happening, the Fox listeners, the Fox viewers, um, had a much different view about the um, weapons of mass destruction than, for instance, those who watched PBS. Hmm. So. I think that there's a real problem about the media um, not being forthright about what's happening.
0: Interesting. What are your uh, hopes and dreams for uh for these coming years for you?
1: Well, I hope that um you know, I'm really interested in in getting this spirit, you know, writing this book and getting the idea of this spiritual awakening going for the for our country because I think that this Id- that what we've seen too often is that uh spirit spirit spirituality is focused only on the private life and Mm -hmm. i think we have to understand that we need a sense of justice for all our citizens and that's how we're going to be much more fulfilled and that's what god calls us to do and i want to get that point across
0: Mm -hmm. kathleen kennedy townsend she's going to be speaking uh this afternoon uh, on the campus of carthage college in the in the todd weir center in uh the jockey room uh your topic actually i think this afternoon is going to be on uh, bullying and violence it in is. schools and how our schools can be uh, made safer places and the public is indeed uh, welcome to uh, to attend this uh, public address by Kathleen Kennedy Townsend 5:30 this afternoon at the Todd Weir Center on the campus of Carthage College Kathleen Kennedy uh, Townsend it's been a great pleasure to speak with you today on the morning show we are so pleased that you made time in your busy schedule to join us today
1: Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you.
0: And we thank our listeners that uh, provided some interesting questions as well. This is The Morning Show on WGTD. The preceding interview with Kathleen Kennedy Townsend was recorded in the studios of WGTD back in 2004 during her visit to the campus of Carthage College. Now from the archives of June 2018 comes a conversation recorded with yet another daughter of Robert F. Kennedy, Carrie Kennedy. During my time at WGTD, I have been privileged to speak with two different daughters of Robert F. Kennedy. Some years ago, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend was a guest of Carthage College, and during her visit, she also uh, came to WGTD Studios as a guest of the morning show. More recently, I was able to record a phone interview with Kerry Kennedy, uh, who is president of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights and a very effective human rights uh, activist uh, over the past 35 years. She has put together a truly extraordinary and inspiring book titled Robert F. Kennedy, Ripples of Hope. Kerry Kennedy in conversation with heads of state, business leaders, influencers, and activists about her father's impact on their lives. In this book, Kerry Kennedy is speaking with uh, an interesting array of people who, in various ways, have drawn tremendous inspiration from the work of her father. I want to read to you a brief excerpt from the book's preface. Kerry Kennedy writes, I did not set out to pen a biography of Robert Kennedy. Many have been published and there are more on the way. Instead, I sought to write a book not so much about Bobby Kennedy in history, but about people who, inspired by him, are influencing our world 50 years after his death. Some knew him and worked closely with him, Others were not born when he died in 1968, but he touched all of their lives in profound ways. Each has made a mark on our country or our world and all consider Bobby Kennedy a profound source of inspiration. Viewing photographs and films from Daddy's 1968 presidential campaign 50 years ago brings back a flood of memories, images of people reaching out to him almost desperate to touch him, while powerful men, professional football players, and Olympic athletes hold him back with all their might as crowds mobbed him, pulled him closer, insatiable. In defiance of gravity, he leaned over, leaned in, reached out with his full body, light, sinewy muscular, as if to say with a full heart, I am yours, we are one. He never seemed frightened or ill at ease among the throng. He was just there in the moment. The images also remind me of the aftermath. Daddy returning home, his fingers red and swollen, cufflinks missing because of all the hands grabbing his, wanting to be part of him. Since then, I've heard literally thousands of stories from people around the world, all saying what Robert Kennedy meant to them. Each story is different, but there is one common thread that made RFK so special. He reached deeply into the hearts of his audiences and what he touched was the noble soul in each of them and in us. By the way, the title of the book, Ripples of Hope, is drawn from some remarks which Robert F. Kennedy delivered in a speech uh, in the mid-1960s during a visit to Africa. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Now my conversation with Kerry Kennedy, uh, author of Robert F. Kennedy, Ripples of Hope. Kerry Kennedy, we welcome you to The Morning Show, and I compliment you on this marvelous book, Ripples of Hope. I think one of the things that is remarkable is that so much has been written about your father and many books still to come, of course, and you acknowledge this uh, in the forward to the book, that uh, finding a fresh way to speak about your father is no small matter, but you have managed to do that with this wonderful book. Uh, did anything in particular give you the idea to frame the book in this way?
2: Well, uh, throughout my life, people have told me that my father was their hero and that because of him, they decided to pursue whatever career or social justice goal they were engaged with. And so I thought it would be interesting to put together a, a group of people who have been greatly influenced by Robert F. Kennedy, um, so that it wasn't looking back at something that happened in the past, but really looking about what's happened because of his influence over the last fifty years, and looking forward to the next fifty, and why his um, message of peace and justice and compassion towards those who suffer is still so important today. Mm.
0: The the people whose thoughts are gathered together here range in age from 18 years old to 90 years old, and, of course, range uh, f- f- in other ways as well. This is a relatively diverse group of people. How did you come up with this particular group of people uh, to share their thoughts about your father?
2: Well, there are people like Gloria Steinem, who covered my father during uh, during the 1960s, as a journalist, um, others who never knew him but were influenced by him, people like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, Tim Cook, who was who is the head of Apple, and Howard Schultz, the head of um, Starbucks. So people from the business community. I was looking for entertainers. Bono writes one of the best essays on my father that I've ever written. I mean, I've ever read anywhere. And George Clooney tells such a sweet story about being eight years old when my father died and his and from a Catholic family living in Cincinnati. And his father comes to him and says, um, you know, what do you think we should do about this? And George says, well, I guess we should get something up like Lent. And his father said, okay, so what do you want to give up? And George says, well, I guess my guns. So George is thinking, well, my favorite game is is Cowboys and Indians. I guess I could give up my guns for the day. So he says, guns. And his father goes on television the next day and says, I'm so proud of young George. He's giving up his guns forever. (laughs) And then George is like, oh, no, wait, wait, no that's not what I had in mind. And then he goes to school the next day and his teacher brings him to the head of the class and says, George is giving up his guns forever. And then he goes to the grocery store and the people behind the counter says, we're so proud of you, George, giving up your guns forever. And <laughs> so he says this kind of combination of of of. Catholic guilt and activism has propelled them to this day to be engaged in you know in south sudan and uh, and other causes that are are creating change across our world so i I love doing this book, writing this book, um, interviewing people because you really gain a lot of uh, insight into Bobby Kennedy and his influence, but also gained great insight into people like John Lewis, Marion Wright Edelman, Soledad O'Brien, and so many of the other people I interviewed.
0: Absolutely. I love a moment in the foreword, which is superbly written by Thurston Clark, who wrote a definitive book about your father's uh, presidential campaign in 1968. I got to interview him about that book, as a matter of fact. In the foreword to your book, Thurston Clark writes that among the great qualities that your father had was perhaps most important for a leader seeking to unite a bitterly divided people, he had a lively, moral imagination. I realize these are the words of Thurston Clark and not your words, but I wonder if you have an idea of what Mr. Clark is talking about there.
2: Absolutely. Um, And I think, I, I love that phrase and I've adopted it as my own. Um, So I'm glad you're acknowledging Thurston for having coined it. But he, uh, you know, this is what allowed my saved us from nuclear annihilation during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when my father was able to imagine what it was like to be um, Khrushchev and to have the Soviet uh, military industrial complex pushing him towards war, just as our own military industrial complex was pushing Uncle Jack towards war. And because my father and and uncle uh, were able to see that, they found a way towards peace. It comes up again in in Indianapolis after Martin Luther King was killed, and Daddy was facing a crowd, about a thousand strong, in Indianapolis. Um, in the largest African-American neighborhood, many people had been there for hours waiting for my father's speech, and so they hadn't heard the news about Martin Luther King. But there was a group in the back of the crowd who had heard the news and came equipped with bicycle chains and Molotov cocktails, and they were ready to riot. And Daddy got up and said, for those of you who are angered by this act and move towards hatred i can say i've had those my, those same sorts of feelings i understand those sorts of feelings because i had a a member of my own family killed now try and imagine a political leader standing up in front of a crowd ready to riot and saying i understand your feelings
0: hmm. exactly and then
2: he goes on and then he goes on to say But what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not violence. What we need in the United States is not lawlessness, but a sense of compassion towards those who are suffering, whether they be white or they be black. Mm -hmm. And that's what stopped Indianapolis from burning that night. 125 other cities across our country started to burn. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that, ability to understand the other it's it goes beyond compassion because it's really uh, an empathy it's really that moral imagination it's being so able to understand others and then think through what is the best reaction what should we do next
0: I'm glad you uh, singled out uh, Bono's essay as being especially fine I think it's a uh, a real high point in your marvelous book. And one of the interesting moments in his essay, uh, it's actually uh, his remarks when he accepted the RFK Ripple of Hope Award, is when he calls into question the f- what he calls the phony distinction between pragmatism and idealism. And he feels yeah. like your father, Robert F. Kennedy, was a perfect example of someone who was both. Who had elements of pragmatism and idealism? He embraced them both, and they were both essential to who he was and what he wanted to accomplish in this world.
2: Absolutely, and I I, I love that you pointed that out. And then I I love his description of what it was like to be in Ireland in uh, when he was growing up. Could I just read a couple of lines for you? Sure. So he says, you have no idea what this meant and what it still means to us in Ireland, those of us whose ancestors missed the boat. You know, we stuck around. We ate the potatoes. But the 1960s and 70s, when I was growing up in Dublin, you could almost taste the regret in having stayed put. Or maybe that was the defeat we were tasting, or ashes. Either way, you cannot exaggerate the miserableness or the miserablism of Ireland at the time the troubles which Ted Kennedy did more than most to put an end to, the economy, the brain drain. It was like the famous dampness of Ireland had finally soaked into our collective spirit. And for all that Irish resilience and defiance, all our bluff and bravado, our souls had the chills, and we couldn't shake them. Hmm. Enter the Kennedys.
0: Hmm. I want to make sure that we talk for a a, a, a second or two at least about the Uh, essay in this uh, book, which is, I should say really is more of an interview. Many of these are actually interviews between you and the guest in question. In this case, entertainer Harry Belafonte, which is so interesting and distinctive in many ways, but especially for a moment when the two of you uh, get into I uh, I don't know what to say, <laughs> I was almost going to say a tussle. Cry. It is, yeah, uh, <laughs> a, about one chapter of your father's life and career, namely the work that he did on behalf of Joe McCarthy. And, of course, this is something that a lot of people have have some trouble with, and especially Harry, Harry Belafonte. And uh, I appreciated so much that this book is not just uh, a cavalcade of of one person after another saying another thing I loved about your father was, but that you also include in this book, this kind of, in a sense, grit. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and I think your book is very much richer for it.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting talking to Harry, um, because I love him. He's, he's been on the Robert F. Kennedy human rights board for 30 years. And he's a hero of, um, of mine, he's he worked with Dr. King, marched with Dr. King, helped Dr. King in the in the 1960s, and um, the Women's March was planned in his offices last two years ago. So he's just been engaged fully in these in social activism throughout his life. But um, he did have this image of my father, which is very common that uh, my father was a, a vir- virulent anti-communist and um, had gone after people with Joe McCarthy, which is not true. Um, my, my dad did work on the McCarthy, uh, um, the, uh, for Senator McCarthy in the 1950s. As he himself put it, I thought that um, communism was a big threat to our country. And I thought Joe McCarthy was doing something about it, and I was wrong. So <laughs> so I, I love that about my dad, but um, he actually ended up really working full-time for that committee for about four months. Hmm. He spent that time mostly arguing with Roy Cohn, who then became the mentor to Donald Trump, uh, incidentally, but really hated – he hated – Roy Cohen because he thought that Cohen was so unprepared um, for any kind of hearings, uh, failed miserably in doing any kind of real research, and was just out there to destroy people's reputation with no reason at all. But Daddy's work on that committee was very specific. It was to look at what U.S. allies were doing to help um, communist China. And he uncovered that the British were selling rubber to China, which was then using that rubber to create – to put tires on their planes that were then used to bomb Americans during the Korean. And he uncovered this, and uh, and he put an end to it, which was really the only substantive thing that ever came out of the Joe McCarthy hearings. Mm -hmm. He then – uh, changed. He he. Then, about a year later, wrote the report, which was responsible for stopping McCarthy from from going forward.
0: I really appreciate that that, uh, that moment of sort of clarity is, is offered and also the, the frank conversation between the two of you wrestling with this uh, aspect of your father's career. I also appreciate the fact that there is at least one strong conservative Republican voice in this book, uh, that of Joe Scarborough. Just say a word about why you chose to include Mr. Scarborough in this uh, collection of uh, a tribute to your dad.
2: Well, he, you know, he um, he was uh, has always considered my father his hero, and there are a lot of people who are on the right who um, consider Daddy he, their hero. Uh, Marco Rubio, for instance, and um, Bill O'Reilly, for instance, the largest collector of my father's memorabilia is Bill O'Reilly. So I think I thought it was important to bring a wide range of perspectives about my father to the fore and to try and, you know, explore what was it about this man that appealed to black and white, rich and poor, young and old, left and right. Um, And that question is so important today in our country when we are, again, so terribly divided and where people feel like they can't even go to dinner with members of their family because there's so much division over politics. And yet, this is a man who is deeply engaged, fully involved, taking on the most difficult issues we had as a country, and was able to bring together people on all sides of the political spectrum. Hmm.
0: The book, again, is Robert F. Kennedy, Ripples of Hope. Kerry Kennedy, thank you for bringing the world this marvelous book, and thank you for being part of the morning show today. Best wishes.
2: Thank you.